1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated, church. Well, some two and a half years before this morning's text, Matthew tells us that John the Baptist was out preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, this man had been set aside. This John, he was the forerunner. He was the messenger sent from his mother's womb to prepare the way for the coming of the true king of the universe. Since the fall of man, all creation, excuse me, since the fall of man, this world, had been under the power of the evil one, that serpent who was called the devil. He'd come to make war against God and against those that had been made in his image, tempting, tormenting, seeking to lead men to their destruction. He loved the chaos. He loved the death. He loved the confusion. He loved all that sin brought to this world. But then on that day came Jesus Christ, the son of the most high God, the God-man that had come to destroy the works of the devil. And almost immediately, his power over darkness was shown. As for 40 days, he was tempted there in the wilderness. While he fasted, went without food, under the heaviest of temptations from the enemy, and he never once wavered, not a bit. And then the sick were healed. The seas were calmed. The dead were raised from the dead. Even the demons fled at the sound of his voice. John the Baptist asked, are you the Christ? Or should we wait for another? So Jesus sent word to him and said, Tell the man what you've seen me do. The religious leaders wondered if maybe he wasn't doing these things by the power of the devil himself. But Jesus told them, I cast out demons by the finger of God. And because of this, you know that the kingdom has come. The kingdom of God had come because the king was here. He was doing things that only the king could do. Truly, this man was the Christ, the son of the most high God. And he did all this while marching towards the cross. It was there at the cross where he would ultimately defeat the enemy, where he would overthrow him, when he would snatch men from his grips. As Mark told us in the third chapter of his gospel, he said that Jesus was entering into the strong man's house, that there he would plunder his goods. This was what he did. As he took men that were in the snares of Satan, he took men that were enslaved to Satan, and he snatched them from his hands, from the ruler of this age. So men might be right, right to say, well, oh, it's a wonderful thing to be set free from sin and Slayton, Satan and death. Those things truly torment me. But what about God? Surely he won't receive me back into his kingdom because I was all too glad to join with this enemy in his rebellion. What could ever be done to make me right with him? To which Jesus responds, not only will I set you free, not only will I become sin, not only will I take your sin upon myself, I will do so as my Father pours out his wrath so that you may be adopted sons and daughters. 
so that you find for yourself a place within this kingdom. This was the message and the mission of Jesus Christ. This was the gospel that he had preached from the beginning, that I have come to set men free from the devil, that I may deliver them unto my Father. And then, rising from the grave to prove his victory, right before ascending back to the Father, he told them, I will come again. This next time when he comes, on that day he will not be seen as the kingdom coming in the form of a lowly baby. He will not be the king coming to lay down his life for his servants. He will come with absolute power and glory. He will come riding in as judge to destroy those who have chosen to continue in their obedience to this king of darkness. He will come. There will be no mistake on that day as every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. Dear children, the kingdom came once in a lowly baby. When it comes the next time, he will come as a consuming fire. All those that have been snatched from the grips of Satan and entered into this kingdom of God, all of those will, endure, will enjoy unending blessings. Those that have not, they will see punishments the likes of which we could never imagine. Therefore, friends, the question that is before every single one of us, this is the question of the whole Bible, therefore it must be the question of your entire life. As we live in these in-between times, between his first coming and his second coming, as we wait for the return of the king and the consummation of his kingdom, the only question which really matters is how does one enter in? How does one receive the kingdom of God today? This has got to be the primary concern of our every waking moment. This has got to be the only thing that matters in the entire universe, more than clothing, more than food, more than shelter. What is the king's disposition towards me? Where do I stand in reference to the kingdom? And when he returns, what will I receive on that day? The question that every man must ask himself in these in-between times. You see, the first century Jewish people, they believed that the kingdom must come by force, by power. And there were times within the church history when they believed the very same thing. They believed that the kingdom was advanced at the tip of a sword. But there's been a shift in the last hundred years. No longer do we seek to bring the kingdom by force, by military might. Instead, we seek to legislate, to Christianize a nation. That if we just pass the right laws, we can just elect the right people. If we can just do the right things, then surely we can bring the kingdom of God to earth. Or perhaps we can seek to bring about the kingdom by acts of charity. Maybe if we can feed enough homeless people. Maybe if we can just get right involved in the right social causes, then surely the kingdom will come. But friends, this is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not the way of the kingdom of God. Now, for true believers, certainly we're going to have a compassion and a love like Christ. We're going to care for the lowly and the sick and the needy. But Jesus makes clear that the kingdom of God, when it comes, it comes in something that is imperceptible to the rest of the world, completely unseen by those that God has not yet given eyes and ears to see and to hear, like a man sowing seeds or that seed growing while the man sleeps. Perhaps like a grain of mustard or some yeast hidden in amongst a loaf of bread, a mystery, something completely unnoticed by the rest of the world. For those who find it, it will be the greatest thing in the entire universe, like a treasure. They will gladly forsake everything else to grab hold of this, but for the rest of this world, it'll seem like nothing. This is why Jesus told the Pharisees in Luke 17 that the kingdom is not a thing that can be observed. They cannot look over here and say, look, here it is, because the kingdom of God is not of this world. The kingdom of God goes unseen by this world because it is not of this world. It is not a certain group of people living in some defined area. The kingdom of God is his rule and his reign in the hearts of his people, even while they live in a world filled with darkness. So as we preach this gospel, 
We cry out for the supernatural working of God. We beg him to change men's heart, that they would turn and they would submit to Jesus Christ as king, that they would give everything within them to honor and to obey and to worship him. The world laughs. They say, what are you doing? Look at all that we've accomplished over here. Look at all the emotions. Look at all the crowds. Look at all the people that have come. Look at the movement. Look at the numbers. Look at the name that we have built for ourselves. They look to us as if we've done nothing, as if we've wasted our entire lives. Because the change of a man's heart over here, a man giving his heart to God over, in, over there, a slave set free from sin to devote himself to righteousness in Jesus Christ, those aren't things that build a crowd. Those aren't things that gather the masses together. They're things that go unseen to them. And the same was the case in Jesus' day. People came for food and for healing. They did not come to see a tax collector giving back that which he had stolen. They didn't come to see a prostitute that had devoted her life to purity. They didn't come to see a young girl that was no longer consumed with the God of self and now given herself over completely to Jesus Christ. These things don't mean anything to the world. But dear friends, these are the true signs of the coming of the kingdom of God. A changed heart. A transformed life. The rest of the world, they see it as nothing. They see it as nothing. Dear friends, it is everything. As we seek to enter into this kingdom of God, as we seek to see God change the hearts and minds and lives of people, men giving themselves over completely to the king, submitting to his reign and to his rule, to the worship of him in this time, and even so many that call themselves Christian, they're so consumed by the things of this world, by the finances and the politics and the emotions and the, all the happenings of this world around us, they call us narrow-minded. They think, well, surely you can't believe that all the answers are really right there in that book. I mean, look, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's great for getting a man into heaven. But when the real troubles of this world come, you've got to do something. Don't keep showing me this book. Don't keep talking to me about a changed heart and a changed life. Do something. To them, we humbly reply, dear friends, we have given our lives to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. We know that it is by this word and by the working of his spirit that God does this transformational, supernatural work in the hearts of men. That is how the kingdom comes. As we bring men into the kingdom of God, it may look to you like inactivity. It may look to you like a wasted life, but it is the only thing that matters in the entire universe. As you look at us and you say, why won't you do something? You say, because there's nothing for me to do. The king of the universe has done it all. Now allow me to introduce you to him. This is the only power which will endure to the end. This is the only way by which men may be spared when the king returns. Not only spared, but receive eternal blessings from him. It's the only thing that matters. This must be the absolute devotion of our lives. That we have the story of this king that is returning. That we call men to turn in their hearts, to submit to his reign, to submit to his rule, to give themselves over to completely worship him. That they may then go and represent him in the, to the ends of his earth. This is what Jesus meant when he preached. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance and faith. Ongoing repentance and faith based on the word of God by the power of the spirit of God. This is the only way for entrance in the kingdom of God. And as the clock was winding down, Jesus knew that even those men that were closest to him were going to have a really hard time understanding this. We live in a really busy world with a whole lot of activity. We live in a really loud world with a whole lot of voices. And Jesus knows to call a man to sit in silence before the king of the universe, to allow him, through the preaching of his word and the power of his spirit, to have their hearts turn, turn to him as their allegiances are completely transformed, 
That's a hard, hard thing for men to understand. And so Jesus was going to devote the six months that are left to helping his men understand this. So with that, I'd ask you to go ahead and stand to your feet, please. We return to the 10th chapter of uh, Mark's gospel. We begin in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, and laying his hands on them. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, we confess that in our natural state, your kingdom is nothing to us. We don't want it, and we can't see it. It is only those that you have awakened, that you have brought to life, that you have given eyes to see and to cherish this thing which is so very, so very valuable. Father, it is our prayer that you would make us those people, that we would see and cherish your word, and that through your word, by the working of your spirit, we would enter in. Pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. So it began like this. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. So we can safely assume that the they here are the parents of these children. So the Greek word is in the masculine, meaning that it was at least some fathers and some mothers, probably both parents. But we're not told anything about these parents. We aren't told that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We're not told that they have any desire to confess him as Lord. Much like the majority of the crowds that were following Jesus, we are probably safe to assume that most of them looked for nothing more than an earthly blessing. Just something that would come from contact with Jesus. And this was quite common in that day. Just a touch from a holy man. People would often bring their children to the rabbis or to the elders, asking them to touch them as a sign of, of blessing, as a sign of encouragement and favor. Now, the, the Greek word used here for children is padia. This is the same word that's used of Jairus' daughter, the one that Jesus raised from the dead. It can mean a child up to the age of 12. Luke tells us that they were bringing even brephos, that is, babies or infants, and so this would explain why Jesus was able to take some of them, at least, into his arms here at the end of this text. So we've got these parents, and they're coming, and they're bringing their children, some of them perhaps infants and babies, bringing them to Jesus that he could lay hands on them and bless them. You see, church, this is where many people stop their sermons. They see a sweet picture of Jesus holding some babies, of Jesus with some children, and they just don't go any further past that image. And we, we know that this story is about so much more than parents physically bringing literal babies to Jesus. But let us not let our desire for true and deep doctrine, let us not allow our desire for true and rich theology distract from a beautiful picture that is here. This is a basic reality. Parents really did bring their children to Jesus. They may not have understood why. They may not have understood who he was. But it is a good thing when parents bring their children to Jesus. We praise God for children that bring their uh, parents that bring their children to Jesus even if they don't know what compels them. That's why we spend so much time around this place, so much time and energy and resources trying to love on kids, trying to make certain that children are welcome, that they know that they are valued in the kingdom of God, that we can have this opportunity to invite them to Jesus. You see, because the first century, or in the centuries before the first century, in the centuries before this time, there were many Jewish parents that were sacrificing. They were literally killing their babies in honor of the false god called Molech. Today, Many parents, they sacrifice their children to the false gods of sports and grades and popularity or just general apathy. And so we cry out to them, would you please come and introduce your children to Jesus? This is why we scream out to the world, bring us your babies. Bring us your children. 
We will introduce them to the one that can transform their hearts. We will introduce them to the one that can give them entrance into the kingdom of God. And of course, we want entire families to come. Of course, it is God's desire that the fathers would be the one leading them. But when this isn't happening, we will do everything that we can by God, everything that these families will allow us to introduce them to the Jesus of the Bible. It's a costly enterprise, but we will do everything that we can in this area. So they're bringing their children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked him. These guys. So they, they were just in Capernaum, like literally they were in Capernaum, and Jesus took a literal baby and said, whoever receives one like this receives me. Now the point, as we discussed way back then, was not about a literal baby. The whole pur purpose to what Jesus was teaching was that you must be willing to serve and to receive even the most lowly, even the most insignificant brothers and sisters within this community. That to do this is to receive me. But to make this picture, he took a literal kid and put him in his lap. And these guys still don't get it. It was immediately after this that John spoke up and said, Jesus, we saw a man that was casting out demons in your name, but he didn't follow you the way that we did, and so we tried to stop him. Jesus said, cut it out. He who is not against us is for us. Quit trying to restrict access to me. And now these guys are sending away little children. Again, restricting access. And I can guarantee that they believe that they were helping Jesus. They thought he was way too busy to have time greeting and talking and messing with these little kids. Or maybe they were just selfish. Maybe they wanted some alone time, some quiet time with Jesus. Life had been hectic after all. So maybe they wanted some alone time with Jesus, and they knew that these noisy and unwelcome distractions that children bring, that this wasn't going to be helpful for them. But either way, they sent the child away, or they sought to send the children away. Verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Now this is a strong word. We have seen Jesus frustrated before. We have seen him frustrated over the slowness of perception of his, of his followers. We have seen Jesus saddened and frustrated over the hardness of their heart, over their slowness to come to an understanding. But anger, this is not a thing which is seen as naturally and as normally in the life of Jesus. The first instance that comes to my mind is again back in Mark chapter 3, where Jesus healed a man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were there. They were seeking, as they always were, to trip Jesus up. They were seeking to distract him and to trip him up. And so sure enough, Jesus, he was angry. He was filled with wrath for these people. That these men that would present themselves as the leaders of Israel. These men that would present themselves as the keepers of the law. These men that loved to go out in the public squares and have people pat them on the back and tell them what holy men they were, what righteous men they were, what keepers of the law. We look to you men as our leaders. And now they proved that they had no concern for anyone actually coming to God. They had no concern for the lowly, for the sad, for the sick, for the needy. They cared only about their own reputations. And so now for these men, and of course the story, it's not just about a man with a withered hand. It's not just about a biological child. It points to something so much more. But Jesus was moved by love and compassion. He saw the needy. He saw the sick. And he was moved in his spirit to act. And then for these men... For these men that sought to represent the kingdom, for these men that claimed to represent God, for these men in the name of religion to turn away those that needed help, Jesus was furious. And now for his followers, for those that had been with him from the beginning, for these men that had no place in the entire kingdom, and yet only because of Jesus Christ and his choosing, his calling of them, now all of a sudden they're walking side by side with the Messiah. They believed they had become somebody now, and so they were seeking to turn away children, to restrict access to the king. And Jesus was indignant. Now, in case you were wondering, the disciples also got mad about some things. The scripture tells us that the disciples, they were indignant whenever they found out 
that the mommy of James and John had gone to Jesus and asked if he would place them at positions of power within his kingdom. The disciples, they were indignant when the woman took the alabaster flask, alabaster flask broke it with the valuable, the expensive ointment in it, and anointed Jesus' head. You see, these men, they were, they were indignant. They were angry whenever somebody or something threatened their position within the kingdom. They were indignant whenever they believed that valuable resources were wasted in the worship of Jesus. Dear friends, don't you see, you can learn a whole lot about a man based on what makes him mad. What makes you angry? The things that anger God? Or are they the things that inconvenience you? What drives you to indignation? What fills you with fury? Is it the things that come between God and man? Do you stand like Jesus looking over Jerusalem weeping, deeply sobbing at the destruction that's coming upon them because of sin? Or do you only get mad when somebody threatens your pride or your position or your comforts? Are you only mad when someone challenges you and your status? Or do you truly weep with Jesus about the things that he weeps? Are you truly angry over the things that anger the Lord? You can learn a whole lot about yourself based on the things that make you mad. So when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. It's a double command. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Do not prevent them. Do not turn them away. And of course, this is not the point of the entire message, but we ought not hinder children from coming to Jesus. Now, of course, we cannot condemn little ones. We can no more snatch a child away from the hands of Jesus Christ than we could save them in the first place. But ultimately, we must ask ourselves, have there been times when we have sought to restrict access to children or anyone else to Jesus Christ? Because it was uncomfortable because they were annoying, because they were a nuisance or they were a distraction? Have there been times when we didn't bring children or others to Jesus Christ because it just didn't seem all that important to us in the moment? Or even more subtly than this, have there been times when we have come between people and Jesus Christ because of our own actions? They have seen our witness. They have seen the way we carried ourselves. They have seen the way that we talk about this Jesus. In what ways have we hampered, have we hindered, have we gotten between others and Jesus Christ, that we misrepresented him to this world. Parents, your child's eternal destiny is secure in the hands of Jesus Christ, but each one of us will answer. Each one of us will answer for the role that we have played. And as a church, we must be a people who loves on children and loves on families well. No matter the cost, we must do everything that we can to welcome those and to introduce them to Jesus Christ. But dear friends, here's where it gets tricky. We must introduce them to Jesus Christ of the scriptures. This isn't just happy fun time. This isn't just dodgeballs and donuts. We must make certain that we are a people who introduces children and anyone else that God would bring into our path to the true Jesus of the Bible. And that means... Teachers, particularly you teachers that deal with preschoolers and children, you must know the scriptures. Do not think for one minute that because you're teaching five-year-olds that you don't have to study the word of God, that you don't have to prepare to introduce them to the deep and true and rich doctrines of the living God. You've got the most valuable job in the entire world to take to little, little, little minds like sponges 
little trusting minds that want to hear and know and learn about Jesus of the Bible. And you've got the opportunity to pour into them the poison of this world. You've got the opportunity to pour into them the watered-down gospel of the rest of this world. Or you've got the opportunity to pour into them the truth of the living God, the only gospel which truly saves, the only gospel which leads to the kingdom of God. So do your work. Study, prepare, do your work, say the hard things, and lay down your life for the sake of these children that God has brought to you. And so Jesus tells them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. So what does this statement mean? That's really the crux of this whole passage. What does this statement mean? To such belong the kingdom of God. If you read this in the NIV or the NASB, you'll see that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. You'll notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say here that the kingdom of God belongs to these children. He's not here making some kind of soteriological statement about this specific group of children. There are many people that preach that. There are many people that preach that the kingdom of God belongs to certain children based on the faith of their parents. That children somehow are saved because their parents are saved, because their parents are believers, because their parents have access to the kingdom of God, it is automatically transferred to their children. Or perhaps because of some, some Christian rite, baptism perhaps, that if you can come to the church house and you can do the right things with your children, that they are guaranteed to receive the kingdom of God based on the faith and the faithfulness of their parents. But again, we're told nothing about the spiritual state of these parents. We aren't told what they believe about Jesus Christ, if they believe anything at all. We have to believe that this group was probably made up of a very similar nature as the rest of the crowds that followed after Jesus. Most of them looking for nothing more than some bread and some healing, maybe a blessing set over their children. Would some of them come to saving faith in Jesus Christ as a result of this encounter? Probably, but many more. If we're to believe the parable of the sower, if we're to believe the picture that we see there after the feeding of the 5,000 when so many of the disciples walked away when he began to preach the hard truths, then we must believe that many, if not most, of these people would never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They would never have a place in the kingdom of God. And so I see no evidence that what Jesus is saying here is making some statement about the spiritual health, the spiritual estate, or the kingdom of God with regards to these specific children that are there with him. There are other people that believe that what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of God belongs to all children, that these children represent all children, and that as a result that all children are given the kingdom of God. But church, you need to know that scripture doesn't indicate this. The Bible paints a very clear picture of the state of every single human. Every single person is ever born that we are born into sin. Romans 5.12 tells us that sin came into the world through one man, and because that one man sinned, because of the sin of Adam, all have sinned. Jesus, when speaking to Nicodemus in John 3, he says that that which is born of flesh is flesh. King David makes clear that the reality that from birth he was in sin, lying as, as he came out of his mother's womb. So we know that Every single child that is born, he is born with both the guilt and the propensity for sin. There is none that is born in some righteous state. And at that sin, it precludes them from entering into the kingdom of God. This is why Jesus would go on to say in John 3, that truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, that is born of spirit, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Children do not inherit the kingdom of God based merely on the fact that they were born into this world. To be born in this world is to be born in flesh. To be born in flesh is to be born in sin. To be born in sin is to be all too happy to carry on in that sin as we grow in age. So there must be this new spiritual birth, this second birth. It's only by this gracious, saving work of God that he causes men to be born again of spirit that they may enter into the kingdom of God. Now most often, the way that this comes about 
is in children or adults. They come to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. God raises them to life. They hear this truth, and they respond in repentance and faith. This is a normal pattern for which God causes men to see him as their only hope in all the universe. He saves them and calls them into his kingdom. But we also know that God can and does cause this new spiritual birth in the lives of at least some infants. We know about John the Baptist, how he was filled with the Spirit of God while even within his mother's womb. We know that King David was given great confidence by God that his baby that, was, that, that, was, that did not survive birth, that this baby was in heaven with God. So we have great reason to trust that the God of the universe can and does cause some, even some unborn children, to, be, to undergo this second birth, this new birth, this spiritual birth, that they may be born into his kingdom. And yet, while God does not make any clear, absolute statements on the subject, and so we cannot, therefore, speak universally with universal certainty about what happens to every single infant that dies, we can, compare with, uh, we can proclaim with absolute confidence that God is good. We can proclaim with absolute confidence that his wisdom and his mercy and his love and his grace and his goodness knows no ends. We can declare with absolute assurance that his ways are higher and greater and better than ours. And we can affirm that everyone he saves, whether he saves them in their mother's womb or whether he saves them at the ripe old age of 90, that every single person that Jesus saves, he saves as an act of unmitigated grace and only on the basis of the atoning death of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. So, it would be contrary to biblical teaching to believe that what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of God belongs to all children based merely on the fact that they are children. Again, firstly, because many of the children in this morning's text, they would have grown up to have no desire whatsoever to follow after Jesus Christ. Many of the children that we're reading about this morning, they would have grown up to continue on in their sin and complete separation from God. They would have lived and died knowing nothing about the kingdom of God, having no interest in the things of the kingdom of God, living and dying in their sin, having no place there. But we know that God completes every good work that he begins. We know that God doesn't bring someone into the kingdom of God only for them to lose it later. It's not as if God gives the kingdom of God to children and then some of them lose it as adults. If God brings you into the kingdom of God, there you shall remain. And so we cannot say that the kingdom of God belongs to all children, nor is that what Jesus is teaching here. Also, we cannot say that Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God belongs specifically to these children, that the kingdom is theirs based on something that their parents believed or something that their parents have done. Dear friends, it is a good thing. As I write this, you notice how closely I'm sticking to my notes right now, by the way? I don't want to misspeak here. I don't want to misspeak here. But I will tell you that as I, as I wrestle with these things, I will tell you that God keeps whispering one truth to me over and over and over again. It's a really good thing that your children's salvation is not in your hands. You can't even keep up with the car keys. But we know that these children, he's not speaking to these children based on something their parents did or did not do. Again, because we don't know anything about the spiritual state of these parents. And secondly, because Scripture makes clear that it is only those that are born again in spirit that will enter the kingdom. To be born once, even to be born into a Christian family, even to be born into a family where you're baptized, even to be born in a family that goes to church three times a week, even to be born in a family that brings you to, brings you to church every time as possible, 
To be born once is to be born of flesh. To be born of flesh is to be born a sinner. To be born a sinner is to be born separated from God, no matter the faith of your parents. So Jesus cannot be saying here that these children, these specific children, have got the keys to the kingdom of God because of something that their parents did. And lastly, if what Jesus was speaking about here was specifically infants that do not survive, specifically infants that do not live to adolescence, then he would have had to make that clear because these children are not all said to be infants. Some of them may have been as old as 12. And even among those infants, some of them would have lived to a ripe old age and wandered away from the kingdom. So again, if all those that are brought into the kingdom of God remain in the kingdom of God until their very last day, and some of these would have lived to a ripe old age, Jesus cannot be saying that these specific infants hold fast to the kingdom of God. I don't believe Jesus is making any absolute statement here at all about specific children, about these infants, about other infants, about these children, about other children. When Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, he isn't speaking about literal children at all. He's saying the kingdom of God belongs to people like these children. You must become like a child to enter into the kingdom of God. To those such as these, would you be such as these? These children are a picture. They're a picture of the kinds of people to whom the kingdom is given. You remember back in Galilee when Jesus did bring that child in and held him there in the crook of his arm. He was telling them that this is a picture. This is a picture of the kinds of people that are most insignificant, that are most helpless, that are most needy within our, within our community. These are the ones that you must serve to truly be great in the kingdom of God. Here again in this text, he's using a child to paint a picture. A picture of the way in which man must come to the kingdom of God. You cannot receive the kingdom of God unless you become like a child. Just as marriage paints a picture to the world of Jesus Christ and his church, this child paints a picture to the world of the way in which men must come to him in saving faith. Have you ever wondered why children weren't born grown? Number one, because they'd kill you. Have you ever wondered why children are not born grown? Independent. It would pick up and run from the start. I believe that at least in part, it's for this purpose right here. It's to illustrate for us. Look to this child. This is the way you must be dependent upon me. This is the way that you must approach me. This is the way you must come to me. To such as these belong the kingdom of God. I believe that that's why he's done this. I believe this is the picture that God is painting. As we look into the eyes of an infant, of a toddler, of a child... We're to see the picture of the way that we approach the kingdom of God. And Jesus seems to affirm this in verse 15 when he goes on to say, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a, small, like a child shall not enter it. Truly I say to you, this is a statement of authority. Amen in Greek. He's saying, Amen, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You'll notice he says receive the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a gift to be received, not a thing to be snatched, not a thing to be conquered. Not a thing to be accomplished. It's a gift to be received. It's a blessing to be entered into. And these children, they're really good at receiving gifts while having nothing to offer in exchange. Think about it. What do children bring to the table? Other than being cute sometimes, what do children bring to the table? Nothing. They're helpless. They have nothing to offer up. They haven't even grown into their abilities yet. They can't even, even if you hand them the food, most of them can't feed themselves properly yet. This is the picture of the way in which we come to Christ. This is the picture of the way in which we come to the king, thereby we come to the kingdom. This is what Jesus meant when he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. He says this is what repentant faith looks like, recognizing that you come with nothing to offer, nothing in my hands I bring, 
Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Babies can't dress themselves. They cannot wash themselves. They cannot feed themselves. They have nothing with which to commend themselves. Luke, in his parallel, right before this text, he says, For everyone who exalts himself, these are the words of Jesus as recorded by Luke, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Humble, naked, desperate, hungry, unable to care for yourselves. Dear friends, this is the state of every man that ever walked. The question is, do they know it? To them that believe that they've got the cat by the tail, they've got the world under control. That's not a real saying, is it? Cat by the tail would be bad. World by the, something by the tail. World by the tail. World doesn't even have a tail. For those that think they got things under control, they do not. For those that think that they can, that they can offer something to the kingdom of God, for those that believe they have earned something in the kingdom of God, they will soon be humbled. But for the humble, for those that know they have nothing to offer, for those that they are desperate for the working of God, they will see exaltation in the kingdom of God. Jesus is speaking to a generation full of people that are built on pride, a generation full of people that believe that based on bloodlines or obedience to traditions that somehow the kingdom of God was theirs. And he's saying to them, no, the greatest among you has nothing to offer. The most self-righteous among you has no way to take hold of the kingdom of God. You must come like one of these, like a child, helpless, dependent, a humble child. Do you remember our verse from Wednesday night? We're in Psalm 36. Did anybody get it tattooed on him yet? Psalm 34, 6. I would love someone to get this tattooed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. What a cry out like a child, knowing that this gift to be received is only received by those that come humbly, and they cry out to God, that those are the ones that he comes to. He administers his love and his grace to. Those that cry out knowing that if you don't show up, Jesus, I'm going to die. I'm going to drown. I'm going to starve. They were to come to him like a child, submitting to him, not strolling in with pride, not offering up all the arguments why he's lucky to have me on his team, not trying to earn anything in his kingdom. Like a child, children bring nothing to the table, but they gladly walk away with everything. And children come without reservation. Children are just single-minded in their focus. You think about this. My favorite thing in the whole world is whenever Lane Henderson sees me down the hall and he yells, Pastor Josh, and he runs. Man, I'm the most important dude in the whole wide world. I don't know if it's going to last another week or another year, but, buddy, I'll take it when I can get it. They are singularly focused on that thing that is before them. And then he sees my candy bowl, and guess what? I don't exist anymore. Singularly focused on that one thing. That's the way a child is. That's why we come to Jesus Christ as we see him is the treasure to be valued among every, above everything else. It's the pearl of great price. We gladly let loose of everything else. That which seemed like everything in the moment, it's nothing to us now. It's all loss because I see the thing that I want. I desire this more than anything else in the entire world. This is so different than the rich man that we're going to meet next week. The rich man, he has accomplished and accumulated everything this world tells him he should have. He's got so much that he's clinging to so tightly. And so the only natural next question for him is, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? It's a belief as old as time. I've accomplished everything else this world tells me to do. Now what do I do to conquer heaven? What do I do to kick in the gates of heaven? What do I do to take hold of the kingdom of God? But that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about doing. It's about receiving this thing like a child. Letting loose of everything else, our pride, our name, our reputation, our independence. 
This is the way a child comes. We must become like a child. But you'll notice what he says here. You'll notice what he doesn't say here is that we must come innocent and without sin. As we've established, children are really good at sinning. No man has ever had to teach his child to sin. Yet it is cynicism and distrust and sarcasm. These are the things that are learned. These are things that are developed over time. An infant knows to cry at a loud noise because they're scared. A child knows to throw a fit because he's been told no. Instinctively, children trust. No man has ever had to teach his son to sin, but we spend a lot of time teaching them not to trust strangers, not to go away with everybody, because the average child, they intrinsically trust, especially those that are kind, especially those that care for them. This should be the way that we come to Christ, trusting in him, trusting that he is for us, trusting that he will work for our good, trusting that we are safer with him than anywhere else in the entire universe, and trusting that all his words are true even when we can't understand them, trusting that when we come to him, like a child, that he should not leave us in a childish state. That while we come to him not demanding all the answers, not having it all figured out, and while we will remain with him completely dependent, you never take the training wheels off of this thing called Christianity. You never say, I got it from here, Jesus, thank you. You're always dependent. You must always remain humble. You must always remain completely at all times looking to him for your sustenance and your life and your endurance. And yet, in your knowledge, in your wisdom, in your understanding, it's his desire for us to grow. This is why we read in Hebrews 12, uh, 5, 12 through 14. By this time, you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. A baby drinking from a bottle, that's cute. A grown-up, that's creepy. We're to grow beyond these things. As we come to Jesus Christ, again, he says to be childlike, not childish. The disciples were childish at times. They bickered over who was the greatest. They bickered over who had the right spot. They're they're slow to understand. Jesus was continually, even after two and a half years, he was continually having to take them back to the basics. I'm afraid this is so many of us. We come to Jesus Christ in trust, and then we throw our hands up and go, well, it'll all just work out in the end forgetting that it's by the working of his word and the power of his spirit that he causes you to endure, that he causes you to stand firm, that he causes you to be useful in the kingdom of God, forgetting that it is a very dangerous thing, that we leave ourselves quite exposed if we refuse to do this thing, to allow him to work in us by his word. This is why the apostle Paul is encouraging the people of Ephesus to cling tight to the church, to thank him for the gifts that he has given them so that they might attain to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He says you ought not be like a child in the wind. You ought not be like a child in the waves. You ought not be just blown around. It's by clinging to the word. It's by the gifts that he's given you in the church as we administer the word, as we teach the word, as we wrestle with the word, as we obey the word. This is the way that he strengthens you. This is the way that he matures you. And this is his desire, that each one of us would come to him like a child, absolutely trusting that he is for us, that his way is better, that we are safest with him, coming knowing that we have earned nothing in his kingdom, coming wanting his kingdom more than anything else, and yet knowing that we have nothing to offer up to him in exchange, completely humble, completely dependent upon him, and that there in the safety of his arms that he may grow us, that he may strengthen us, that we may grow to full manhood, to maturity, that we don't get blown about by the ways, 
They're not dependent only on milk, that we grow into these loftier and weightier things. Dear friends, if this is not where you find yourself, you need to be concerned. You need to examine yourself and be concerned. If a baby stops growing, you know something's wrong, and you take them to the doctor to get it checked out. So you must examine yourself and say, am I growing in the faith? Am I growing in my understanding? Am I wrestling with God's word and allowing his spirit to bring me to an understanding of what he has said? And then verse 16, he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. So Jesus takes these children in his arms and just as he touched the leper or the blind man or any other, any other outcast, any other insignificant people within Israel, he takes them into his arms and he blesses them. And again, I have no reason to believe that this was any blessing unto salvation or anything like this. This was just a, a general blessing of God, much like we do with babies when Families come to dedicate them, and they bring them down before the church. Much like I do standing over my girls while they sleep at night, I just pray that by God's power they would grow to be pure and strong and wise. Just a general benediction said over these children. He desires for them to grow as we all do. We stand over our children. We put our hands on our children. We hold our children. We pray for our children. Dear ones, this is my desire for each one of us. That every single one of you in this room, you would come to God with a childlike faith, trusting in him completely and wholly, that you're not looking to remove the training wheels, that you're not looking back to him and saying, okay, you've got me in the gates of heaven, now watch what I can do from here. That you come to him with complete and total humility and dependence and trust, cherishing him more than anything else in all the world, and that there, safely in his arms, as you wrestle with his words, knowing that your salvation can't be lost, your place in the kingdom can't be lost, that you're wrestling with the deep truths of his word, and that you're being strengthened so that you're not blown around by the winds of this, way, of this world, that you're not blown around by human deceit and cunning and false doctrines, that you know the truth of his word, and you're so firmly grounded in that that nothing can move you from that spot, and yet at all times knowing that I've done nothing to deserve to be here. Dear friends, this is the way that you enter into the kingdom of God. You do this, the kingdom you will receive the kingdom, and you will find your place there for all eternity. To come to him on any other method, any other means, in any other way is to completely miss the kingdom of God, and it's to find yourself on that final day left out. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you have not called us to capture this kingdom by force. We thank you, Father, that you have not caused, called us to capture it by our own wisdom, our own abilities, our own might that you have not called us to somehow further the kingdom by our own righteousness. We thank you, Father, that the kingdom is a gift to be received, is a blessing from you, not a thing which can be earned, not a thing which can be manufactured, but completely and totally a work from you. So, Father, it is our desire to come to you in childlike faith. It is our desire, Father, that you would keep us there in complete and total trust and humility and dependence upon you. But, Father, it is our desire that we would grow in our understanding that we would not remain childish in our understanding, in our knowledge of you and in our knowledge of your word. So, Father, we pray that this word that we have heard this morning, it would take root in our hearts and that by the work of your spirit, we would grow. We would see you more clearly. And as a result of that, we would be changed. Father, as we seek to worship you now, we pray that the songs that we sing, the words of our lips, the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you. We pray all these things in your son's precious name.